Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg, and I'm excited to have Yuri Harris on the podcast. Uh, a little background about her. She's an environmentalist in the degrowth movement. She's an indigenous rights activist, a neuroscience amateur, a feminist, a novelist, and a neurodiversity promoter. Uh, Yuri grew up in Mexico. She's been living in Europe since she was a teenager and currently lives in Belgium and I met her through Twitter. Basically, I was putting out some stuff about getting to the root causes of the eco-crisis, and she had a lot of great things to say, so I wanted to invite her on the podcast. So welcome to the Green Root Podcast, Yuri. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My English is not perfect, but I hope it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's pretty good. In some ways, it's better than mine, so we'll be fine. So we met, I guess you could say, we interacted on Twitter because we were talking about Planet of the Humans, the recent film that came out directed by Jeff Gibbs, executively produced by Michael Moore. And what I like about it, I mean, other than the fact that I'm in the film, is that it talks about some of the root causes of going deep into the environmental movement and maybe why it's not been that successful. And I'm just curious uh, if you'd like to share some of your thoughts on the, the film, and uh, then we can go into other topics from there. I actually uh, look for you <laughs> thanks to the film. I, I was uh, uh, noting uh, the names of people I liked in the film that I found uh, very balanced in their, um, how, how do you say, in their speech and, and their ideas and so i went to look for all of them in twitter and i found you there and i started following you um the film i i was very happy when i saw the film that finally uh we we arrived to the point that we have to start to question our way of life and start to enter the 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 conversation about uh, degrowing, de because I, I I was already there, very um, like 15 years ago I started there, so for me the film it was not a surprise, mm -hmm. it was just a, a good a good news that finally the environmental movement is taking this step because I was for many many years very frustrated that. Uh, we kept to in the surface of uh, uh, what is going on. Yes, that was my, yeah, that was my impression, my first impression in the film. I felt that how I see the 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 environmental path, if we want to, if I want to talk about it more like a personal path that we go into and discover. Um, what does it mean to take care of the environment? I've, I find that it has several layers. And for my path, I found that the uh, planet of the humans went a, a layer deeper, but I think there are more layers below. But I was very happy that we, we, we arrived finally to one layer lower and deeper in the conversation and the, in, the, in their thinking about this. Uh, mm -hmm. This problem that is going to be all, always for humans there. Uh, from now on, 
we are we are going to have to live with this problematic if we survive and i i do believe we can survive uh the the <laughs> the crisis but we will have to always take in account this uh, issue so I don't know. I was very happy. Uh, I don't know what to say. All the critiques uh, about the if, that I saw about the it it was not accurate in some information and things like that. For me, it was completely nonsense in the sense that it was the film is it was not about really that. Yeah. It, for me, the film was more about the conversation of going into question our way of life uh, as humans in this planet. And so for me, the use of that information of the green energy and uh, et cetera, et cetera, if the, if it, the numbers were like different or not different or slightly not correct, or it was completely, um, how do you say, um, Irrelevant. Um, <laughs> irrelevant. Exactly irrelevant. It was completely irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, I share your view on that. I mean, the idea of actually now solar panels are slightly more efficient and therefore the whole film is invalidated. I mean, obviously, that's not a legitimate critique. And I think it does come down to the fact that folks, a lot of the folks in the mainstream environmental movement are very uncomfortable with some of the messages that were conveyed through the film, such as that concept of degrow or degrowth, and then some of the deeper layers. But let's get a little bit into, so the, the degrow or the degrowth movement. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some of your experiences with that? Well, uh, when I, like 20 years ago, <laughs> Uh, the the environmental movement started to like be more uh, publicized or more. We, I, I got in touch with the, all the information about uh, the environmental disaster and, and everything. Before that, it was more intu in, intuition, mm -hmm. like living in Mexico uh, and seeing how how the. Uh, some ecosystems uh, are altered and the rivers polluted and and everything. But the 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 movement itself, for me, uh, 20 years ago was a discovery. Like it, it started to take form somehow. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, I was very engaged in the. Uh, Zapatist movement, the indigenous rights revolution that happened in 1992. Uh, and, and so because I grew up in an, in an indigenous um, community, I was very touched by that. And I got very much involved in that uh, uh, fight or that uh, reivindication of the the right to be indigenous and the right to have a way of life that is uh, uh, different mm -hmm. than the others, you mm -hmm. see? Uh, and so 
This mixed with the discovery of the environmental uh, information that uh, was taking place. And at what point with my partner, we came across uh, in internet at that time, it was, there was not a lot of information uh, like now. And we came across uh, in a, to a site uh, which was uh, about the silent revolution. It, it was called the silent revolution. And uh, we found there uh, a lot of uh, very interesting things like uh, this idea of that your consumption is uh, your vote somehow, that what you consume is what you are uh, nourishing. Where you put your money, is what you are uh, supporting. Uh, and so we started to um, integrate that in our life. And with the, and, and with the concern about the environment, we started to, to think about degrowing, so consume less and... <laughs> You know, and do not give money to companies that we don't like as much as we could, mm -hmm. uh, etc. And at what at at one point, we discover uh, permaculture. Mm -hmm. We found that uh, a fantastic idea, and in fact, we decided together to to take a way of life that takes as little as possible from the environment from nature and we found that that it was the most radical way to take care of the environment um, and so since then we live like that and um, in europe uh, there was a starting of people there was um, the the in french is called the la décroissance économique uh, uh, it was a group of people who started the same type of uh, way of life and they started to share uh, the experience and they started to talk about the political impact of uh, degrowing, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. And now in Europe, it's more kind of popular kind of mm -hmm. <laughs> in the environmental uh, movement. You have several sections. And so you have people who you can identify as degrowist, as I call them, mm -hmm. like people who really question uh, the incompatibility of the uh, uh, eternal growth of the uh, economics and the population and are in a finite planet. Mm -hmm. And so you have these two parts of the environmentalist movement. And so I was, I consider myself since the beginning, the, in the part of the degrowist. Excellent. And yeah, I do think Planet of the Humans gets at that. And I think that that is the component that a lot of the mainstream environmental movement doesn't want to talk about. I, I don't think that they get it like that point your consumption is your vote. So a lot of folks will say, no, no, we just have to, to fight the system. And well, of course, right? Like we've got to push back against these outer structures, but then taking a look at, well, why do these outer structures exist, right? They're 
we're yeah. feeding into them. And in a sense, they're giving us what we want, quote, you know, what we're, we think that we want. So something you had mentioned to me when we were talking before is just those of us who bring up these topics, even though we align in a lot of ways with other maybe mainstream environmentalists, they don't always react positively to what we're saying. And we can almost feel like a bit alienated from them. And so do you want to speak a little bit about your experience in regards to that or thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. It was um, a very painful experience <laughs> when we started that because uh, a lot of friends didn't want uh, to invite us anymore to their parties. <laughs> I was a very popular girl here in Europe because I am very like Latino kind of and <laughs> laughing and everything. I had a lot of friends. Yeah. But when they started to know why we had this way of living, <laughs> I think they started to feel like confronted mm. to their uh, choices and they just wanted to avoid uh, this confrontation. And by avoiding that confrontation, they they started to avoid us. Mm. So this was the first phase, uh, painful phase of uh, <laughs> growing. And so... But we continue because I, 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 I just cannot, my, it, it's like some, even if at the beginning when I started this the grow way of life, I thought we have to give the, the example and everybody's going to follow and it's going to be great because they are going to see that it's possible and you can be happy and everything. Uh, at one point, I didn't believe that anymore because they started to isolate in me and they, they didn't want to have a lot of contact. Of course, I, I started to make friends with other people, people who were in the degrowing um, mindset mm -hmm. and, and everything. But the, the, my, my other friends uh, left me kind of. And so even if I discovered that given the example... <laughs> It's not, it doesn't work, really. <laughs> I cannot stop living in this way because it makes me happy. It's the best way. You, you, you don't need a lot of uh, money. As I always say, to live ecological is the cheapest way of life you can have. Mm -hmm. Because the, the idea is to have a, a lesser uh, footprint on the environment so you consume less uh, and so you expend less uh, even if the for example the the organic food is a little bit a, a, a little bit more expensive here in Europe than the normal food mm -hmm. but it compensates because we don't have to buy where we we don't buy things like uh, new clothes or furnitures or things uh, very spectacular things we don't and so for us it, uh, it's a very light way to live and it's very happy and we love it and we feel very rewarded by thinking that we are not cutting trees that we are not polluting water etc etc so i continue and i just uh i don't know yeah. After I, yeah, I I got a little bit lost. I no, think that's, that's good. After that, um, 
it came the phase to confronting your idea of the growing mm. uh, with the environmental movement. Yeah. And there it happened what maybe is happening to you, that they just don't want to hear that. Uh, most of them. So we have the, the, the section of the environmental movement, which is the growth, yeah. that they are very <laughs> in the same opinions. But the, the, the biggest part of the environmental movement, they don't want to, they don't want to touch this subject. And so I got interested in why, <laughs> why they, they don't want to get into this subject. Right. Well, let's, let's get into that in a second. But before we do, I like what you said about this simpler lifestyle actually making you happier. So a lot of the times it's framed as in, oh, this is going to be a sacrifice. This is just going to be a difficult life of, you know, poverty and just not doing things. And it's not going to be any fun. It's just going to be hard all the time. It's to the contrary. It's all the grasping after the stuff and trying to enhance your status. That is the empty path, right? That's the place that it doesn't really get you anywhere. But if you're like, I don't need all that. I can listen to the rainfall and that is a beautiful thing. So you, you start requiring less. And, and I think it's important for us to phrase things. And it's not just that we're making sacrifices. We're, we're trying to, you know, at least I'm trying, I, I don't think I'm there yet personally, but I'm trying to live a way in which it just requires less. And it's just a, just more satisfying, fulfilling way of living. So I appreciate that you brought that up. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because uh, it was a shock to me when people started to say exactly what you say, that it's, you are sacrificing so much, I cannot sacrifice that much as you. Or they, they were talking it sometimes like a hero. Oh, I, I, I admire you so much that you can live with so little and be happy. And I didn't understand why they were saying that to me. And I have a, a, a little like anecdote uh, that we do now with my with my son because I have one son mm -hmm. and he's a teenager and we have an activity which is going not shopping <laughs> <laughs> and so because we live in a society where uh, stores are everywhere and uh, shopping is an activity you yeah. see and uh, all the attention all the almost that shopping became a social center point somehow i think in the in the, in the united states is even uh, uh, stronger than in europe because you yes. have these shopping malls and they get together there and it becomes really mm -hmm. an a social activity right yep. and so because my son is uh, a teen, a, very, um, a teenager we start to go to the society and see and things and so we go to the stores and see things and, and, and we take the stores as a museum, <laughs> as a learning, <laughs> as a learning place. And when we, when we have this uh, impulse of, I like this, I don't know, this jacket, I want to have it because we are humans, right? We want, we have, we are attract, attracted by objects. Mm -hmm. But the fact that to, to stop there and think, do I need that? Yes. It's going to make me happy. I'm going to waste 
so much money and how many fishes I'm killing, mm. how, many, how much water I'm going to be uh, polluting. In the, in, in the moment in, when you start to think about the, the environmental impact of that object, the choice of no shopping it or not buying it, the, the choice of not buying it yeah. rewards you. Yes. It's the contrary. You see what I mean? You, you, we, we, we go out, we get out from the store, like, wow, I didn't shop five items. Yes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I've done that in stores and kind of looked at, oh, okay, these pair of pants here. I should probably get this pair of pants. I'm like, you know what? I already have a pair of pants. I don't need this. The summer's coming on. I'll be wearing shorts. I don't need this pants. And I'm like, wow, this feels great to have not bought that pair of pants. It's like you get the satisfaction that a lot of people get from buying yeah. stuff, which doesn't last very long. You buy it and then you need more. But this is like, I didn't buy those pair of pants. It's It feels really good. Yeah, folks should definitely try that. <laughs> they haven't <Yeah>. already. <laughs> I was thinking to make a video like the, the no shopping meditation. <laughs> I, well, that's what it is, right? It's, it's like you have a yeah. craving and... You acknowledge the craving. It's like a very mindfulness thing. You acknowledge the craving and where's the craving coming from? And maybe I don't need to feed that craving right this second. It's not like don't get things that you need, you know, of course, when you need stuff. Yeah. But right now with the pandemic, it's you're not going out shopping. I mean, of course, there's uh, here in the States, at least there's Amazon Prime. So you get everything at the click of a finger. But it, it's almost like uh it's a bit different because you're not going out to those environments that are just like these stores with all this stuff. Because some people would accuse you of being um, basically a masochist. Like you're going out there and you're like <laughs> punishing yourself. How would you respond to accusations of that? Uh, I haven't talked about these non-shopping uh, trips we okay. take with anybody but you. Okay, well now the world <laughs> you knows. You are the first Nobody knows we do that. <laughs> I think it's great. I think that can catch on. Yeah, I, yeah go. Let's go invite your friend out. Let's go on a no no shopping trip. I mean, it's like window shopping, yeah. right? But yeah, don't don't succumb to the the pressure to buy anything. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, so we were talking about some. So the consumption element, of course, very important. Uh, a lot of people in the environmental movement say, well, it doesn't matter if you don't buy stuff um, because, you know, we have these whole systems, but we're acknowledging that we're feeding into those systems. You know, if it's talking about fossil fuels, it's like, it's great to say, keep it in the ground. It's great to have your rallies, but then you send your check every month to the gas company for your fracked gas that you are utilizing. It, it's sort of like a meaningless thing, not meaningless, but it's not a complete thing. You can't just say no this, and then you keep feeding into it. But what what are some of the deeper layers, would you say, that so Planet of the Humans only went so far? And I agree, you know, it's saying a lot of stuff that I had already known because, you know, I've been working on this like you have for a while. What are some deeper layers that we could get into? Uh, well, the because I, uh, I was confronted so much with the reaction of people around me yeah. and I was trying so many things since this uh, decision. Um, the first uh, 
question that comes after all those reactions is why? Why all these people are, are telling me this? Why all these people are not taking this choice? Uh, because I find that a, a fantastic choice of not shopping or not or a, or a having a minimalist way of life. Why, when I go to the supermarket, even if uh, organic food here in Europe is, um, it's, I mean, it's everywhere, and uh, you have a lot of choice. And it's not that expensive, that more expensive, just a, a, a tiny bit more expensive. Um, and if you don't buy your iPhone, you can perfectly uh, eat the most incredible food ever. Because mm -hmm. in, in fact, the food in the, in the organic shops are it's, it's delicious. And you have absolutely everything uh, you can imagine there. Yes. And so why the people do not take that choice. And so, and then I started to see the environmental uh, devastation problem as a behavioral uh, issue, more than a technical one, more than a political one, because the environmental movement takes uh, the environmental problem either as a technical with the green energy and uh, stuff, the green technology, or as a political one. Mm -hmm. uh, like the government don't, has to do this and this and this, and the government and the government and the government. Mm -hmm. But what about the people? What about the, the choices they do every single second of their life? I live, for, now I live in a let's say, a well-developed democracy in Europe compared to Mexico, for example. So I have this luxury of uh, of being able to compare what is not to have a democracy or not a well-developed democracy like in Mexico uh, and having and living in the, in the north of Europe, which is, uh, for me, for my, for my experience, is quite well. So... Democracy is about representation. So I always thought, how can people complain about the government and the government if they are not able to take the, the simple choices in everyday life? Mm -hmm. um, the, go the government is representing their cravings. The government, I was thinking about what would I do if I was um, elected, I don't know, prime minister of this country or president in Mexico, with all these people that they have all this craving of consuming in social status and everything, I will just get mad because you have this contradiction. You see, they want things, but they are unable to, to take the choices that create that um uh, Let's say the, the, the that that create that uh, help, <laughs> but uh, uh, they are unable to cr create the the conditions for the results in their life. So if you have a government that is going to say, "I have 
<laughs> I have uh, one example. Mm-hmm. Emmanuel Macron, uh, the uh, French uh, president uh, in this moment, wanted to solve the problem of uh, fossil fuels. And he wanted to start uh, um, oh my god the the money you pay for to the government you have to cut um, taxes or yeah, tax. uh, he he wanted to make the taxes higher in fossil fuels okay. and people protested a lot because he wanted to do this transition and all the things that we questioned because Laura, but they he wanted to do that, but people didn't want that. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to pay more for gasoline because they didn't want to take the public transportation. And the public transportation is not well developed in some places because nobody takes it. You see, I live in the countryside, and you have one bus that goes from this uh, this town to the other town. It's always empty, mm-hmm. and so they have to to manage also uh, economically. They cannot have a, a, an empty bus every ten minutes if, pe- if people don't take it. You see, you start to observe how the pop the the how there is a contradiction in all the the, the democratic system, the, the the demands of the population, the response of the government, and the, there is like it, it, it. If you start to observe that, it it becomes absurd yes. for you. You see, you. and so the deeper layer. We, we have to talk about, or I want to talk about, is why? Why is this happening? Why? <laughs> and so I started to take, to pay attention in everything that ha- science has about the behavioral tendencies. I started to take a look in biology, uh, in uh, neuroscience, and I started to collect every single... <laughs> Uh, information that could help me to understand why people is doing all this. And I found uh, some answers there. And this is the layer which is uh, the deepest layer. Mm. Uh, the, the different types of brains, you, uh, you, as I call neurodiversity, different types of uh, behavioral tendencies in, human, in humans, uh, why they happen, how much is nurture, how much is nature or inheritance, um, how much uh, um, is genetic or not. Uh, and this is more scary than the, the part of uh, the planet of the humans, because then you have to start to question the entire human paradigm we live in. And so this is the deepest layer I'm talking about. Yeah. I don't know if it was clear or not. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm right on with that. So 
so not to reveal all your secrets, but what what do you think what do you think is at the heart of maybe why we're consuming so much things like that? Do you have any insight on that you want to share? I do, and it's very complex somehow. And sure. this is the 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 worst element of this deeper layer that you you enter a paradigm. The paradigm, uh, I'm going to start from the beginning. The human paradigm we live in now as, um, as a society, as, uh, as a civil- civilization, it's called the blank slate. And it's the, the, this idea that we are born completely empty and all our behavior is shaped by nurture by education experience uh, your uh, um, childhood what you live how your parents uh, educate you how, what the uh, education system gives you that and this paradigm is questioned by science now we are entering uh, in neuroscience and, and in science and in uh, biology, bi- in the biology of behavior in humans, we are entering another paradigm, and it is called the neurodiversity paradigm. And this paradigm questions this idea that we are born completely empty, and we are all born equally empty. <laughs> right. See, this idea that there is one human nature or one humanity, and behavior, uh, anyone can behave in any way, somehow, if they have their, their good education. This is all, already in science, in very recent neuroscience, is already uh, invalid. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work to explain uh, the social problematics, and it doesn't work to explain the environmental problematic it doesn't work if we start to if we continue to think that we all humans are born with exactly the same behavioral tendencies and we can uh, educate people to this and this and that we are going to fail every single time as an environmentalist because it's not scientifically valid mm-hmm. the problem now is that this transition from the blank slate to the neurodiversity uh, paradigm or the more innate or um, that the studies more the the innate qualities of the behavioral tendencies, things that you cannot change with education, Mm -hmm. Uh, the transition is recent. It's very, you, you really need to pay attention in what now is being published in neuroscience now, mm-hmm. in this moment, you see? And so it's very difficult to explain how this works. They, I, they, this is the, so this problem of the blank slate paradigm in the, the environmental movement is causing this failure to resolve the problem because we we cannot understand the roots of the problem 
as far as we continue to take this par this uh, invalid para paradigm, we cannot analyze it. And so, as far as the uh, environmentalists continue that path, they won't find the answers. Now, what are the answers? <laughs> The answers are very complex because now you cannot think, you cannot say humans are these or we all humans uh, have this tendency or you cannot say we all humans uh, like this or fear that. Or, you cannot anymore. You cannot say that anymore. You see what I mean? And so it becomes more complex because it becomes about different types of humans or different types of brains that interact with each other you see mm -hmm. so for example in one parameter we have the innate tendency to dominate mm. and this is a, a very important point for the environment because if you take a look deep in the environmental problem it's about dominating nature mm -hmm. you see or taking from nature to dominate humans like rich people does you see like uh, taking more and more and more um, resources from nature to get richer and richer and richer and so have more and more power and so have more domination over humans and over the over nature so the parameter of domination uh, is being uh, there. There are many studies in neuroscience and in biology, especially in chimpanzees and other species that are very near from us, that can give us uh, uh, a more clear vision about what humans and diverse humans are. And in this parameter, you have in humanity, <laughs> you have at Big, um, like, how do you say, degrade, uh, gradation, mm -hmm. a gradation of innate tendency to dominating humans. And this is linked to uh, testosterone and the effects that testosterone has in the development of the brain. But it is more complicated because it's not about sex. You have women or, or um, women that are very much affected by testosterone in the uterus that have a very like masculinized brain. So it's not it's not about women and men. You see, it's more about brains and it it. it uh, how do you say? You have men and women that have an innate tendency to dominate, which is stronger, and you have men and women who have a lesser uh, tendency to dominate in humanity. And you have all the betweens. You see, it's, there is not a cut. You see the complexity of it. I do. <laughs> and so. For that, <laughs> I don't know, maybe we will need more, I will need to make more like a, a work of decrypting all this information with more detail. I don't know if 
I could explain more or less the idea, the general idea. Uh, the problem with this uh, innate tendency to dominate is that you cannot change it. You cannot change it. It, it will change its expression, but not the power of it. You see? So let's say, for example, when you, you take a look in all the studies of neuroscience and, and biology, etc., about prenatal testosterone in brains, you will see that, for example, Al Gore has a very testosteronized profile. <laughs> and so you, you can uh, start to um, anticipate what he's going to do. And so I, I, when I, when I got in touch, or when I saw Al Gore in the, in, in the planet of the humans, it was like finally the truth came out <laughs> because I could see that. You see, and so, and the example of Al Gore is that he, his expression of dominance was in the field of uh, environmentalists, in, in the field of environmentalism, yeah. which is supposed not to be about domination, yeah. but he used it to dominate. Yes. And this is the complexity of it. And so, even if he's not going to be a macho dictator, like right. he's going to, I'm going to dominate and I'm going to be the dictator or everything. Yeah. The expression of his power, his tendency can be different. You can have a religious person also who, a Buddhist, for example. I was very much in the Buddhist <laughs> world. Mm -hmm. And there you have also people who are less dominant and people who are more dominant, and even if Buddhism is not about domination, and is completely the contrary, you will have some masters that are going to take Buddhism to dominate. You see? Yes. And that's the thing. And that's the beauty of this discovery I did, because suddenly you start to think, see humans and humanity completely in another way. And you start to find new kinds of solutions for the environmental problem. But the sad thing is that you are very alone <laughs> in this because it's complex and it's very new in science, all that. And they discuss about that also. So it's, it's a shaking terrain, a shaked terrain, so it's not very solid okay. now. So... I don't know if I explained it that no, well. I think you did a great a great job getting to the heart of that. And yeah, there's so much to say on that. And I think you blew a lot of people's minds just with what you were saying. There. <laughs> but I wrote a novel, and, and we'll, we'll want to talk about your novel writing now, if we could. I wrote a novel. I write horror fiction, and I wrote a novel. I didn't get this published. I've had other stuff published, but no one would publish this. It's called Alpha Syndrome. So it was basically a horror novel about a, it's supposed to be a disease, but then you find out it's actually a, a different <laughs> creature that does it. But 
it makes people become these supreme dominating alphas and how it actually manifests itself in different individuals and maybe different genders and stuff like that. Um, so, but no publisher was interested in that concept, but I think that's at the heart of so much of this. So I appreciate that you brought that up. And, and I guess the segue would be, I'm curious about your novel writing. Would you say that that's perhaps a way to get out some of these complex ideas in a way that people can absorb and understand easily? Uh, yes. Um, what I found when I started to promote neurodiversity or the the other um, the neurodiversity paradigm is that we are confronted to so much um, censorship, self-censorship, because there are many things that we are afraid to think. We are afraid to think that we are different because we are from others, for example, uh, or that others may be different from us in, in a more innate way. Uh, like we are able to accept that, for example, um, physical beauty is genetic, but we are not able to accept that internal, what we call uh, in, um, how do you say this in English? In innate, I don't know. Innate, uh, um, what we call inner beauty, maybe also oh. genetic. Oh, okay. Sure. You see? Yes. And, and this is going to be a taboo, which is um, very painful because we are confronted to uh, some many types of supremacist thinkings. Like, if I am more empathetic by nature, I will be better than others. You see, we are, we live in a mind, a social mindset where suprema, all kinds of supremacism are present. Like intelligent, someone intelligent is superior to someone lesser intelligent. Somehow, we have this idea of superior and inferior which goes with the hierarchical way of thinking, you see? And you are educated with that. And in some, in some times, you have a lot of auto-censorship to accept that, let's say, intelligence could be different from one person to another, and it's not... It doesn't mean that this or that is more superior or this or that trait is superior than the other, mm -hmm. but you are conditioned to think about it, right. to think that it's superior. You see, yes. like I call it that, for example, the, the supremacy of empathy mm -hmm. we have in some, in some uh, social spheres. We think that to be empathetic is to be superior, mm -hmm. maybe because of religion also. You see? And so someone who is less empathetic will be inferior. Mm -hmm. And when you start to th talk about the innate uh, possibility of the levels of empathy, <gasps> it's panic. Mm -hmm. It's panic for everyone because then we arrive to genetism or to fascism right. or to racism or everything. And we, we have a lot of fears 
about it. Yes. And so we have to abandon, in a way, this way to see things as superior and inferior, to understand and get in the way of accepting innate diversity in humans. And so because this is very emotional mm -hmm. and this touches a lot of taboos, self-taboos and pains and uh, very emotional things, I decided <laughs> that the best way to, to pass all these ideas was through characters yes. who are living these struggles. Uh, who are living these emotions, these confrontations, these changes. And so uh, instead of just putting the information there raw and having all these people panicking and t telling you horrible things that you are a nasty head genetist, <laughs> things like you are not, instead of confronting these crazy reactions, I decided to, to, to create stories, design stories that are going to permit uh, the person reading it to go through those emotional phases and to arrive to some new ways to see humans. And this is why I started. So in a way, I am not really an, a writer. I'm, I am more an activist mm -hmm. <laughs> disguised as, an art, as a writer. You see what I mean? Sure. <laughs> and so these, these are my stories. And so I touch a lot of uh, subjects. I started one with about a girl who wanted to save the last forest, more ecological. Uh, I touched the, the subject of religion. And, and now I'm uh, touching the subject of feminism. Because all these subjects uh, are very good to introduce what I found about uh, dominance, about the biology of dominance. This is my... Um, backstory of my novels so this is why i write that's and that's yeah. exactly the conclusion that i'd come to so as somebody i call myself a recovering activist like you know i was addicted to activism and you know it's kind of a joke but i was telling people here's what you should think and who listened to me well the people who already agreed with what i had to say so i was kind of that concept yeah. of preaching to the choir then i started doing journalism I'm going to put out all the facts here and kind of let people come to their own conclusions, um, but frame it in a way. Still, it was just the people who wanted to hear that would pay attention to it. And in fact, I became less popular as a journalist when I was putting across all the ideas across the spectrum. People were like, well, this isn't 100% my view. I don't like this. And so I was realizing, because I have been writing fiction over the years, those characters, the story, get people to care about an, a character, you know, get them to feel these emotions, and then you can pepper in those ideas, kind of in a less cramming it down their throat way, but you're still getting the point across. And I think that's really the way to do it, taking these fictional stories. And I mean, we have to do all of the above. We need activism. We need journalism. Yeah, sure. But those of us who are interested in writing the fiction, I think that's beautiful. Are any of your novels available or are you going to hide them from the world? <laughs> Yeah, I self-published them. I wrote an, I wrote 
them in Spanish. Okay. <laughs> and I translated uh, them in English. And then I, uh, someone, uh, I have uh, um, uh, a team of English speakers that are revising them oh, always. And so they are uh, already there, but I am revising, re-revising them okay. Okay. <laughs> at the moment. So if you go to Amazon and you type my name, you will see them there. I, I haven't uh, do the promotion work sure, because I, I want to uh, be patient about that and uh, have uh, a good, like I have this um, idea to have ten of them, uh, and that I'm happy about them, right. and then uh, <laughs> start to um, uh, promote them. I don't think I'm going to be taken by uh, well-established publishers because my novels are very confronting. Sure. Uh, sometimes they are going to touch the great taboo of uh, the blank slate, oh, and yeah. when you, yeah, and so I don't want to be censored by uh, an editor yep. because you have no idea how this, um, how this uh, dictatorship of the blank slate is in our society. Oh, you have me. no idea. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. and the, the gatekeepers. So there's gatekeepers in the mainstream environmental movement. There's gatekeepers in the media and there's gatekeepers in the publishing world as somebody who has gotten. Yeah. I've gotten lots of well, I've gotten tons of my articles published, but in the fiction world, I've gotten short stories public. Once I actually start putting a little bit into it, like a little bit of meaning behind it, though, some of the best stories I've written, I couldn't get published. So it's it's very interesting. And I agree there are certain taboos that. They don't want out there. And the thing is, if you can't get past the gatekeepers, you build your own gate. So that's the beauty of independent publishing is you can just put it out there yourselves and you don't have to get somebody's permission to put it out to the world. There are probably people out there who are interested in what you have to say and you don't need some editor or publisher to be like, well, that, you know, this also accords to my view. You can just put it out to the world. So that is what's nice about the options we have today. But you had mentioned something about feminism, and we were talking a little bit before about how that ties into the issue of population, which even though it was briefly, it was mentioned in maybe a, a minute of Planet of the Humans, that is a, of course, it's always been a controversial topic, but the the idea of, okay, well, there's consumption, right? And then obviously it's consumption times the consumers, like the number of consumers. And obviously it's a, it's a delicate subject because in the developed world, particularly the U.S., people consume many times more individually than folks who live in other countries. So that is absolutely needs to be taken into account. But of course, over time, as the number of consumers goes up across the world and the amount of consumption increases, which, you know, as developing nations become developed nations, the idea that we don't have to, that we shouldn't talk about that at all is sort of silly. And it's, and it is a delicate subject because there are racist folks who can hijack that. But just because there yeah. are some racist folks who hijack that does not mean that that's never something to discuss. And you were saying that there's a, a potential uh, feminist perspective on the issue of population. I was thinking this morning that 
of course, what you say, it's, uh, it's I'm total, I totally agree with you. It's a very controversial subject, especially, for example, in Europe, because, <laughs> you see, now we have uh, this uh, uh, story behind uh, in Europe with uh, the Second World War, and now uh, we are living a new wave of racism uh, growing in Europe. So I can understand that uh, people get afraid about the subject. And so I was thinking maybe the best way to touch it is through the lens of feminism. And I was, because uh, some months, uh, when I started my, my novel sub, uh, around the, the subject of feminism, I was thinking, in fact, f feminism is a great environmental tool <laughs> because I consider myself first of, uh, an environmentalist. Everything in my mind goes to the environment. This is my core way of thinking. And everything else must serve <laughs> the environment in my head, you see? Mm -hmm. So I... I um, I question a lot feminism because, in fact, feminism doesn't enter in the neurodiversity paradigm. It's, it, it, it's um, the, everything that has to do with feminine, feminism is constructed with the ancient paradigm, which is the blank slate. So in my paradigm, it doesn't work anymore, feminism. Uh, and so, but I still consider a feminist somehow in that paradigm. And so I, I started to think about using feminism as an environmental tool myself. Because if we observe what happens, for example, in, north, in, in the north of Europe, which are compared to other societies in the South and so on, which are a very feminist societies. They are very feminist in here. Somehow feminist is, feminism is not on discussion anymore. You have more and more women uh, in power, in politics, etc. And what we see here in the in the behavior of population, if we want to see, is that what feminism brings is a balance in the population growth, because women consider valid not to have children, not to have many children. Uh, having children is not an issue uh, it's not an issue anymore as it is in the more patriarchal societies. Like in Mexico, for example, the more children you have, the I don't know what, <laughs> the more important you are kind of or uh, in other societies like in uh, I don't know in the Middle East, I think, uh, the mother with a lot of children has more respect. It's, more a, it's also a, a status-seeking uh, thing. Uh, 
And in here in Europe, it's more about um, personal choice and what makes me happy as a woman. It's, it's more, it's, it got free from that patriarchal pressure that in other societies. And the surprise is that the results are balanced in the population growth. So I think as an, as an environmentalist, we should pay attention to feminism as something like that. And maybe it's a safer way to start the conversation uh, in the feminist, environmentalist um, uh, context, let's say. Yeah, I think I that know. can be a it's really. A <laughs> yeah, I think that can be uh, an interesting perspective on the population aspect. And I used to be a part of eco-feminist organizations back in Oregon years ago. So I think there's a lot of validity to that, and I think that can reach a lot of folks. So that's that's really interesting. One of the other things you had mentioned was something about creating tools for young people, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I'm somebody who I worked in public schools and special education for years because I had, this was right out of college, I had sort of given up on adults. I'm like, well, I'm not going to convince adults of anything. Uh, let's you know, get them while they're young. So some people would call that brainwashing and indoctrination. I would say just <laughs> yes. it's providing them with information so they can sort of make their own choices, but have other options. So I'm very interested in, in that, and I've written some children's stories and things like that. So what, what were you talking about when you meant creating tools for these young people? Yeah, well, as I have a, a teenage son, um, I think a lot about his future in this planet, right? Uh, it's environmentalism, when I, I, I gave birth, became... Uh, like an urgency, <laughs> something that has to be resolved, because I cannot, I cannot live uh, a planet or a future with no hope to all these new generations. I, I'm, I am in touch with new generations every single moment of my life through my son, right? And so, uh, because. I found so many precious tools in what I study, in what I found in neuroscience and biology, etc. For the future, uh, either to create a sustainable society, or either to survive uh, the wave of ecological destruction, all those tools I found in neuroscience can save your life in many ways and can it could save the planet in many ways. But because, as I told you, uh, there is a great resistance to, to start to think in another way in adults. Um, those tools, I am like, like in my novels, I talk about them through my novels so kids can get, get 
curious about this science because I, I am not brainwashing them. In fact, what I want to do with my novels and my writing and my tools is to say in, in, a, in a very complex way to say to young generations, hey, take a look to neuroscience. You have the answers there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see? That's the only thing I'm doing. <laughs> After they take a look to all that neuroscience that gives answers, they can do with that whatever they want. So, because, and those are the tools that I'm talking about. The, mm. the, the tools are to know that it's not because you have this type of brain that the person in front has that type of brain, or it's not because you have this aspiration and you find it like it is the core of my being, that aspiration that another person has the same one. This is the big mistake that we as uh, environmentalists are doing uh, and as a society. That is because I don't like uh, to dominate, then all humans should have the same hatred towards dominance. You see, it's not explaining the world is putting in danger children, humanity, and young people. And for me, science is a tool. And the knowledge about neurodiversity is the greatest tool I've found mm-hmm. to so many things. And this is what, what, I, what I want to share with other kids. The, uh, the, the fact that, A, don't believe everything that the ancient paradigm is saying you take a look to new information take a look to the new paradigm and then uh, you will be safe somehow this i don't know if it's clear um the and and the tools are very specific for example if you are um a a child uh, which has a very low innate uh, tendency to dominate, you will be in this society, uh, you will feel like an outsider all the time. You will feel like, for example, if you are a guy, my husband has this type of brain configuration, very feminine brain configuration, let's say, like low testosterone kind of, and my son also. You are very, very much bullied by society. Uh, men with a more dominant uh, natural behavior are going to see you as a half man or uh, they are going to always um, humiliate you and tell you you are this and that. And, and that can put you in danger somehow because you can create uh, um, self-hatred, you can uh, uh, fall in the traps they put so you can serve them and they, they, they can destroy you somehow in a very dramatic way. And the fact that you, can, you tell those kids that uh, uh, they are simply different and it is valid and it's beautiful and uh, that those dominant guys are like that, it, you won't change them, but you don't have to listen to them. 
can put these different types of brains safer in the world. You see, I don't know, I, I kind of see them more as psychological tools also. Like, uh, it's very difficult to accept uh, innate neurobiological differences when you live in a, in a, in a society which believes that everybody has to do the same and think the, think the same and be the same way, you see? Yes. Uh, so it's uh, scientific tools and psychological tools somehow, what I'm talking. And for the environment, I really, uh, I really believe if in one day in the future, let's say 100 environmentalists, Take a look to those studies about biology and the natural drive to dominate and the differences in between humans. Mm -hmm. They will find the solution to the environmental problem. They will, because it is there. <laughs> I, I agree. And I agree. And that's unfortunate because a lot of folks in the environmental movement, they just stay in one little compartment and they're not interested in that stuff. And a lot of the folks who might study that kind of science aren't as interested in the environmental stuff. So personally, as a journalist, it was not about being a master of any one particular category. It was having a breadth of understanding across the board. Yeah. And that's personally influenced the way I look at things and why I started becoming, I guess, what's called a, a dissident environmentalist, not less of an environmentalist, just not tying into just the ideology and like, no, it's just this. And that's the thing. It's like, well, let's let's go deeper and let's look at some of the roots. And I totally 100 percent agree that's that's definitely getting to the root of a lot of this. And that's the kind of stuff that I want to be talking about on this podcast. So I really, really appreciate that. Are there any final words you have for the audience, uh, things that they should be keeping in mind or books to read or what do you, what do you have to say as a conclusion to folks on the Green Root podcast? Oh, well, if you are an environmentalist and you really want to find the, solution to this problem. Uh, please take a look to neuroscience. I have myself a collection of almost or more, maybe there are more, because every time I'm adding more and more and more of abstracts, very, I, I, we are very um, disciplined in this. So we don't like fake science, we don't like fake fake distortions about science, you see. When when you have these behavioral sciences, you can have people who have a lot of, um, uh, how to say, um, speculations. Uh, they, they create their own interpretations about things because they want that to be, you see, and they can distort science. So, what I do is I, I take the abstracts from the university, I put it in that, that blog, maybe I can give you the link, and every quote has a link directly to the abstract and the real uh, investigation they did. Okay. So every, my idea is to, to, to bring that 
information to, to anyone. I, I am sharing this link everywhere I can. So people can make their own conclusions. I don't want to give the conclusions to them. Right. Because, yes. you, right? And But I do think that in this subject of dominance and all the biology and the science around it, there are very important answers to resolve, to solve the environmental problem. Uh, there, are, there is one book also that uh, marked me a lot. It's the Franz de Waal. Uh, he's a zoologist. Mm -hmm. He studied uh, the behavior, chimpanzee behavior, and, and he mm -hmm. wrote a very important study about the parallel of the social behavior uh, of chimpanzees with humans. And this book is so important to understand because you start to see humans through chimpanzees. Yes. And you don't get lost, you see? Because when you, you see humans, you get lost about your own projections, your own things, uh, your own wishes, your own desires, what you want humans to be. <laughs> and if you see through the, the behavior of chimpanzees, this gives you the distance you need yes. to understand humans' impacts and or, or more or less humans, no? And another book, but this is the uh, author, I don't like him very much, um, Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is a problem denier. Yeah. And he, 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 even if his work is very important in the scientific world, his conclusions are very distorted for me. Sure. Uh, he thinks that we are la la la, very happy that we are better than ever, and the environmental problem is, uh, ah, you see? Yes. And so he, as <laughs> a person, I don't like very much. But unfortunately, he did, <laughs> well, fortunately or, or unfortunately, uh, he did a very uh, good compilation of what is uh, the science breaking the blank slate paradigm. Right, and the book is just called The so, Blank Slate, and I agree. I mean, sometimes you got to go to folks and you don't really agree with most of their ideas, but they get it right on one piece of the puzzle yeah yeah so the conclusions for me are well or his political statements or his sociological statements for me are like uh, no yeah but uh, some information there it can be helpful to understand and it's a good skill um, to I, be able to develop where you can go to somebody who's like all right just because i don't agree with this and this and this that's an excellent point, you know. So developing that discipline to be like, all right, I don't have to buy a hundred percent hook, line, and sinker everything this person is saying, but I can see value in this one component. Yeah, exactly. Because we have to do that all the time. Because yeah. we, we humans, we are full of uh, wishes and things that like distort our vision. We are not objective beings. Never. So we have to be always, we, we have to be aware always that we, we are subjective 
beings <laughs> and we are going to our opinion of things is going to be always subjective exactly. so <laughs> well on that As, note let's conclude uh thanks so much yuri harris should, uh folks can follow you on twitter at yuriria harris so that's y-u-r-i-r-i-a-h-a-r-r-i-s and check out some of what you have to say and get in contact with you if they want to i have a youtube channel oh. but i was uh, creating videos in english and then i stopped because nobody was uh, listening to me because <laughs> i think my english is not very appealing oh, not sure. uh, but uh, i have videos in spanish if there are some spanish speakers or some in um, in french and some in english very ancient ones some i threw them away <laughs> and sometimes i create videos i am not a youtuber sometimes what is your youtube idea. name how can they find you yuridia harris uh also okay well yeah. excellent well yeah. thank you so much for coming on the podcast this was really great i'm so glad we got these ideas out there to the world and uh, i hope to stay in touch yeah thank you very much i'm very happy to find you <laughs>